Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition from the Milton Metz studio and I use radio TV building at Indiana University. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with my co-host Sarah Whitmire who is the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. The direct-to-consumer DNA testing company Ancestry DNA sold nearly 1.5 million testing kits on Black Friday alone, this uh, or Black Friday weekend alone. It's a rapidly growing industry that's letting consumers know their genetic heritage and health risks with just a sample of their spit. So that's what we're going to talk about today on Noon Edition with three guests. We have two in the studio, Matthew Hahn, who's an Indiana University faculty member and director of the Center for Genomics and Bioinformatics, and Rika Kasel, who's an associate professor in the IU Department of Anthropology. And joining us by phone today is Brad Shear, who's a lawyer and privacy expert with Shear Law in Bethesda, Maryland. You can join us on the program by calling 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, thank you all for being here. Brad, thanks for joining us by phone. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And Matt and Rika, thanks for being in the studio. I want to turn to you two first. Um, you know, you your jobs are involved with with DNA from and uh, what ancient DNA in a lot of a lot a lot of ways. Uh, but it, could one of you, and Rika, I guess I'll ask you first. I mean, this explosion of sort of consumer DNA testing. I mean, how's that strike you? Well, I think it's sort of a natural outgrowth of the research that human geneticists are doing and anthropologists are doing in terms of trying to uh, examine human uh, history and prehistory, um, and of course, uh, a lot of medical research into how genetics relate to our health, um, if you want to uh, go down that alley with these companies. Um, I also worry a bit because um, whenever things get translated into um, <clears throat> the, the two marketing terms and uh, uh, for-profit companies, uh, you worry a little bit about uh, where some of the nuances may um, be lost and um, where some people may not truly understand the results that they're being given. Mm -hmm. um, so. I think there's 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 more that could be done there. Yeah, Matt, for a version of that question. I mean, as a as an academic and a person and a researcher, um, could you have foreseen this, or did you foresee this? You know, ten, fifteen years ago, that this would be there'd be TV commercials and people would be giving this these as gifts for the holidays. I, I don't think I'm very commercially minded, but I, I think if you just follow what's been going on in genetics research, as Rika said, DNA sequencing technologies, DNA genotyping technologies, which is what many of these companies use, have fallen in price a lot. And so that's been a real boon to the research side, and it's just become within reach of the consumer now. And so there are, all of these companies are using technologies that have been been being used in research for a number of years now. Mm -hmm. How exactly does it work? And if it's consumers who are getting these kits, I assume they're doing it themselves. So is it really accurate? I mean, that so, raises um, a lot of questions. The, the different companies all have slightly different technologies they use. The Basically, you spit a lot of spit into a, a tube. And the reason there's a, you need to spit a lot is that there's lots of bacterial DNA in there as well. So they want to make sure they get your DNA. Um, and then some companies use what's called a chip. So they know all of the markers that they're going to look at. They know they vary in uh, among human populations and among humans, and they just look at those specific variants. Some companies are looking only at the genes, and they're able to find new variants that aren't known uh, to science before. Mm -hmm. I want to bring Brad Shear on the program. Brad's a lawyer and privacy expert uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. So what are your, what are your concerns about this, Brad? 
Well, my, my biggest concern is that consumers really don't know what they're giving up when they're actually spitting into um, the tube and they're sending it off. And what they don't realize is that they're giving up their legal rights and their privacy rights. And unfortunately, the, uh, when you click I agree on their website, they can change their terms of service multiple times without um, you necessarily knowing exactly what's going on. And you're not just only giving up your privacy rights, you're giving up your future generation's privacy rights. And that's something that I think the average consumer just doesn't think that, okay, it's not just my privacy, but it's my children's privacy and legal rights, and it's my grandchildren's privacy and legal rights. So that, I think, is a big concern that I have with, with these tests. Well, this has gone so mainstream that you wrote a, a piece that I read this morning about the Baltimore Ravens prof- NFL professional football team that was going to give out these DNA tests to all the fans that came to a game on a particular Sunday. Can you sort of tell us that story? Sure, sure. Um, I, I, I'm from Baltimore originally. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. And um, once I heard that the Ravens were going to give out these, um, these tests, they were going to give out about 55,000 tests to consumers, I mean to fans who attended the game, and what you would do is you would take a swab, you'd swab inside of your mouth, and then you put it in the test tube, and then you put it in a little box that was um, right by the exit when you left, and then it, you would get uh, the results for several different um, so-called sports um, markers or things that, uh, that the company thought that uh, would be helpful for people that wanted to be athletes. And then, the, and then what they would do is take all the information and utilize it for profit for themselves. Like, for example, they, they have in their terms of service where they talk about that basically that um, you give up almost all of your le- – not almost all, you give up all of your legal rights. And, for example, let's say the police wanted to subpoena your personal information. Well, one clause in there says that uh, if we receive a subpoena or similar requirement to disclose your content, uh, yada, 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 you will reimburse us for our reasonable costs and expenses of complying with such a subpoena. So basically, if you end up providing your, your spit to um, this, the company was called Origin, you give up all your legal rights to that information. And also the police will be very interested in case there is some type of crime around Raven Stadium after a game, they might subpoena that, um, that data. And, um, and if they do, you as the consumer would end up paying the cost of the company to comply with that subpoena. And so what happened was after there was a media firestorm with, um, once it became public that, um, that the Ravens were going to partner up with this origin testing company, then all of a sudden the feds got involved, the state got involved, and they scrapped the pro- pro- promotion. And even though they said that they would do it later in the uh, season, it never happened because it's just not appropriate for large sporting events to have this type of um, testing because, of course, there's so many issues with privacy but also security. What is, um, how can we make sure that the actual test is going to go from the stadium over to the, um, over to the lab without there being some type of uh, security in place. They were just going to put the actual vial in some cardboard box right by an exit. That's not very secure. I mean, what do some of the other people in the panel think? Is that a good idea? <laughs> well, it wouldn't be how I would collect data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, typically That's what a- does happen after you, after you take one of these tests? Um, wh- where is all that information stored? What happens to it? Well, most of these companies do have... Um, uh, a variety of security in terms of their data. Most of them keep the identifying data, your name and so on, separate from the genetic data on different, physically different uh, servers. And like many companies, they try to protect that. Of course, as we know, protecting data is not always successful. Um, but they do keep the identifiable uh, information separate. However, Brad is correct. Th- I've read the privacy policies of many of these companies, and they, although they don't all require you to pay them <laughs> if they have a subpoena or uh, a warrant, um, they they do say that when necessary, they will uh, comply with that. I would say that, um, like many other companies, these companies, several of them are um, posting uh, general information about when they've been uh asked to provide this kind of data, um, both by local authorities and, say, by the federal government, who can also request this kind of uh, uh, information. And um, 
I believe it was 23andMe, but it might have been Ancestry, uh, said that they've only ever gotten five requests and they've not complied with any of those requests. I just picture this, Brad, I, I don't want to make light of this, but I just picture this. People are dropping these DNA samples into a box and like the people that run the stadium say, hey, the, you know, there's, it's last call for beer, so when you're done serving that last beer, grab these DNA samples and run them over to the lab or something like that. I mean, surely they had better security in mind than that. Well, th- you bring up an excellent point, and I, and I agree. I mean, I, as far as I could tell, that was the security. They actually tweeted a photo of the box on their Twitter account to show that, hey, this is where you put the, um, put the uh, test tube after uh, or, or the box after you've um, done the uh, spit um, or swab. It was like a, a little, um, you, you swabbed it inside of your mouth and you put it in a little box and then you put it in a cardboard box and they showed it in, online. And I was like, this is an absolute joke. And even 23andMe, they, they have on their website, genetic information you share with others could be used against your interests. And then they talk about the fact that insurance companies, and um, they may end up using this information against you in the future. So, I, I mean, and the challenge is that they bury this information in their terms, and the average consumer just doesn't, um, they're not going to read the terms of service, because think about this, whenever you click on I agree to whatever platform you're using, very few people read the terms, and then for 23andMe, who is the co-founder, who is the co-founder of 23andMe, and what company is the, um, one of the financial backers? Google, and the co-founder's former wife is the head of um, 23andMe, is, is, is the CEO, is the former is the former spouse of one of Google's co-founders. So, I mean, you got to think about where these companies are coming from and the fact that their philosophy is on data and how to use data and repurpose data. So that's why I'm just not a big fan of this and the fact that um, HIPAA, I mean, HIPAA is not... Um, HIPAA is not going to protect you when you deal with these companies, and that's uh, that's a big red flag in my opinion. However, there is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, uh, which at the moment would uh, prohibit insurance companies, uh, health insurance companies, from utilizing genetic information to discriminate, and also employers. But uh, you're right that we have had changes in laws, and so one cannot predict how those might change in the future. So if you're, and then what about, yeah. wait, what about the new, last year I thought the House introduced the bill, H.R. 1313, the Preserving Employee Wellness Program Act, that would essentially allow companies with workplace wellness programs to demand your genetic information. So it's a big question mark as to where the law is going to be. So, I mean, that's why I'm just, I'm very leery on this. I mean, why why would companies want this DNA? I think uh, one positive. So yeah. so they're giving you a service. That's really what you're paying for. I think most people are paying for the ancestry information, and we can talk more about what they do with that and how to interpret it. But uh, 23andMe, for instance, is pooling that tens of thousands of individuals' DNA together and self-reported phenotypes, so self-reported diseases, heights, weights, all sorts of things about you, to figure out the genetic basis for lots of traits, including disease traits. Okay, so you can voluntarily tell 23andMe, I'd like my DNA to be part of this study, and they may contact you because you have some markers that may be predictive already, and say, yes, I'd like to be a part of a study that looks at the genetic basis of diabetes or something similar, and and they have published multiple papers uh, using that data. But these are... uh pooled data that are de-identified as to personal information. So first you have to opt in. They don't automatically assume you want to participate. And secondly, when they do that research, they don't know whose DNA profile belongs to what name. Uh, and so it's, it's in that way, it protects your individual information from being um, revealed. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about DNA testing today on Noon Edition. So if you've been, uh, if you've bought one of these kits, uh, you could give us a call and let us know about your experience with it. Or if you have concerns about it, you could call us and talk to us about that. Our numbers are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at noon edition. And 
Matt, you were saying a lot of people are interested in the ancestry part of it, but what is some of the, like, are there differences between these tests in terms of some give me results about ancestry, some give me medical results? So, are they different? Um, so technically, none of these companies are allowed to give you medical results. But that is a very gray area because many of the technologies they're using already include variants that are known to be associated with diseases or known to be associated with lactose intolerance. So those variants are in the information they're collecting, and they do return some of it to you. So you can find out about, for instance, the gene APOE4, which is the biggest predictor of Alzheimer's. Now, you have to go through multiple pages of I understand exactly what I'm about to find out from this company when I click through. But they will return your results for your APOE4 variants. And if you're positive for some of those variants, there's a very high chance that you'll get uh, earlier onset Alzheimer's. So you'll have the information. It's just if you know what it means or how to interpret it or um, no. So Not you, even that difficult. You can, for most of the companies, download the raw data yourself. And if you know what you're doing, you can find all of that. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, um, they're giving you a very uh, vanilla version of, of what's in the data. Yes. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, 23andMe uh, really um, sort of has been the pioneer in this, and uh, they've worked with the FDA to um, uh, revisit their tests and, and get, get the, the results that they uh, provide to you if you want it um, uh, validated in a variety of ways. Uh, but like with all genetic tests, you have to worry about false positives and errors and things like that. Um, and uh, for 23andMe, you actually pay extra f uh, for the health data. So it's, I believe at the moment, $99 for Ancestry and 199 to include both Ancestry and genetics. But to be honest, all of these, uh, or most of these companies, look at hundreds of thousands of genetic markers throughout the genome, and many of those are already known to be, as Matt said, associated with uh, particular um, phenotypes, which may include diseases, but also could be hair color. I, I, we have a phone call. I want to go to uh, Dan from Bloomington. I think he has a, a question that might be related to what you were just talking about, Rika. Dan? Uh, hi. Hey, go I just ahead. wanted to insert... Hi. Um, I actually had two things I wanted to kind of throw into the discussion. Um, the first is I'm a software engineer. Uh, I have experience with the kinds of security things, uh, measures you can put around databases like this. And basically, as, as long as they have a way of linking the name to the DNA data, which they have to in order to provide the services they provide, then that data is not secure. I mean, there's no, there really is no such thing as software security. And just look at the, the scale of leaks we've had. I mean, we've had the federal government get hacked, we've had Equifax get hacked, we've had Target get hacked. We've had company after company after company that should know better get hacked because there really is no way to secure data once it's digital. Um, yeah. The other piece of it, uh, the other thing I wanted to sort of inject is um, the DNA testing we use in uh, criminal trials, criminal investigations, has already been shown to be pretty flawed. Um, there was a huge story that came out not too long ago where one of the main labs that does DNA testing had basically screwed up thousands and thousands of DNA tests that resulted in uh, innocent people essentially being convicted. Um, and those tests like that, even though the story has come out, even though we know the data was flawed, those cases still haven't gone back through the courts and those people you know, haven't had a chance to have their trials exonerated. I know the Innocence Project is also doing a lot of work on this, on re-examining DNA cases, and they found a lot of cases where DNA evidence uh, was used to convict innocent people. And for most of us, one of the only things that is protecting us from that is the fact that the government does not have access to our DNA performing these tests on it. And if the government can subpoena a whole database, then there is nothing protecting you from a flawed test result turning you up and getting pulled into a trial for something you had nothing to do with. I'm going to go to Rika so first and then, and then talk to Brad a little bit more. Rika? Uh, yeah, I do some forensic genetics, and um, I would say there certainly is a, a pattern of problems in many forensic labs um, uh, that process DNA. Um, and there's also, of course, always a laboratory error that um, is 
uh, individual mistakes by mixing up tubes and things like that. Um, good labs have uh, quality control procedures to identify uh, those mix-ups, and certainly many of these companies describe what those are. Um, but uh, it is true that errors can be made uh, in these analyses. Um, one thing I would say is that in terms of the results that somebody could get from these companies, uh, and Brad may want to correct me here, that would be uh, a preliminary link between you and a crime, for example, but they would then need to test your DNA from a, a legally obtained blood sample again because uh, there's not a good chain of custody for the DNA samples that go into a company like Ancestry DNA that would hold up in court. So it would be an, an initial uh, uh, link between you and the crime, but it wouldn't be sufficient uh, evidence to uh, to provide a DNA link in, in a courtroom. Brad? Well, the biggest challenge here is the fact that I agree with the caller 100% about the security issues because um, when these companies talk about uh, de-identifying or anonymizing data, that is just not true as far as what they can do. There's some really good work by Georgetown law professor Paul Ohm, OHM, who talks about the surprising failure of de-identification um, in these types of whether it's um, personal data, whether it's DNA, or whether it's your personal information online. And, and so no matter what they're doing to de-identifying the data, I, I just don't think that that is enough of a privacy protection. And plus, think about this. Um, if, if the Trump administration, what they did was they requested recently 1.3 million IP addresses of people that visited a particular website just because they were looking, they thought that they could tie them to people that were protesting in D.C., and just think about that. They were just looking for a needle in a haystack. So if, for example, they, they go to one of these companies that, that has a whole bunch of DNA, uh, for example, let's say someone went to um, the Baltimore Ravens game, or let's say someone went to an Indianapolis Colts game, and they knew a whole bunch of fans um, went to the game, and there was a crime committed, and, and someone was leaving the game with a, a Colts shirt on, and the DOJ or the local police demanded access to the DNA, um, regardless of what, what happens down the road with um, whether or not you can get it into um, evidence, that's going to cause a lot of problems for the person or people that are being caught up in the dragnet. So I just think that we just need to rethink how we're going to handle these issues, and I think consumers need to be aware if they end up using one of these companies, they could, there could be some major unintended consequences with their privacy, their liberty, and their security in their future. Brad, thanks for joining us today. We're going to let you go. We're going to take a short break here. Uh, but Brad Shear, a lawyer and privacy expert from Shear Law in Bethesda, Maryland, has joined us. Thanks a lot, Brad. Hey, thanks for having me. Anytime I can be of help, I'm happy to do so. All right. Thank you. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with WFIU and WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. We're talking about DNA testing today. We have two guests who are with us in the studio. Matthew Hahn, an IU faculty member who is director of the Center for Genomics and Bioinformatics, and also Rika Kasel, who is an associate professor in the IU Department of Anthropology. You can join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also you could contact us by Twitter if you prefer, at Noon Edition. Sarah? Well, so we were just talking a little bit in the break how both of you have done this. So I'm I'm just curious why and um, what what the process was like and sort of what informed your decision to do it. Well, I'm a human geneticist, <laughs> um, and uh, I also uh, teach about the, these topics in my courses. And I felt like I wanted to be able to speak from personal experience. Uh, and so I also have a mother who's really interested in family history. Uh, and so she got on board pretty quickly. And so actually many members of our family have submitted DNA samples. Um, uh, I've done actually submitted my sample uh, to 23andMe and also Ancestry DNA. So what was the difference? Was there a difference? They, they were the same uh, yeah, thing. No, they they do come out differently. All of these companies use slightly different sets of markers, and they actually use um, pretty significantly different um, algorithms for estimating ancestry, uh, and some of them are likely to be more or less successful. They also use different reference data to estimate ancestry, and that can also change uh, those estimates. So uh, most people are going to get slightly, slightly or significantly different answers depending on which of those companies they go with. And if you look, there's a lot of Facebooking and blogging and so on about these sorts of things. Uh, and you'll see a lot from people who said, oh, I sent my DNA into these two companies and they came back significantly differently. For example, my DNA, um, uh, uh, 23andMe believes I have maybe six or seven percent uh, Scandinavian ancestry while ancestry DNA says I have 20 percent. Um, and that's a pretty big difference. But if you look at the details, they both talk about errors and confidence in those that uh, actually mean that those two numbers, although they seem so different, actually are uh, the, the, the single point estimates from a range that do overlap between of percentage of Scandinavian ancestry. So maybe we should just describe a little yeah. bit of what the science is. So, you know, your DNA is not assigned to a geographic location. So the way they're doing ancestry assignment is to say which individuals are you most closely related to and how do they self-identify? So often often the reference set that Rika's talking about are individuals who identified themselves as having four grandparents all from the same country or all from the same small subpopulation like Ashkenazi Jews. And so we, we say those are, are the people we know they're from France or are Jews or Spain, whatever the group it is. And if you have uh, close relations with them according to these genetic algorithms, according to comparing your DNA to theirs, then we assign you some proportion of ancestry to that population. What differs among the companies is how many individuals from France do you have? How many individuals from Scandinavia do you have? What was their history beyond just their grandparents? Because humans are moving around uh, the world all the time. And so, you know, the companies can differ. The results can differ simply because of those kinds of differences. I should also say that they have variable coverage outside of Europe especially. Mm -hmm. So the detail that almost all of these uh, companies have in Europe, because their main market is American, white Americans in general, um, is much, much higher than, say, in East Asia, where they can say, you're East Asian, but maybe they can't differentiate between Korean and Chinese and Japanese and any finer detail than that. Well, and also uh, the groups that we talk about, these an the, your ancestries, your, your genetic ethnicities, as a lot of them call them, are informed by how we view 
humans today. So we talk about Germans, but the Germany is a country that has only recently come into existence, and its borders have shifted even since then. Uh, so, I mean, if you talk about my four grandparents, they're all American. But I, that's not what we talk. We don't talk about I'm an ethnically American. Uh, we talk about, you know, beyond that. But there's also a beyond my French and German and Scandinavian ancestry and British and Scottish and blah, 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 um, because people have been moving around the world pretty much since there have been people. Uh, and so you have to remember that uh, there's there's a, a history in your genes that reflects that movement uh, that can confuse these ethnicity assignments as well. Mm -hmm. So Matt, why did you want to do it and did it uh, surprise you, what you found out? I, I guess I, I mean, I wanted to do it because I'm also a geneticist and yeah. we're, you know, we're geeks, we just want to know. Um, but I also had my whole, my whole family did it. Um, it didn't surprise me at all. I was hoping for some long lost great grandparent somewhere, but I'm just 100% Ashkenazi Jew, every single part of my genome. There's not even a smidgen that's from somewhere exotic. Um, but, you know, we can look at uh, my two kids. We can see the patterns of segregation between, you know, mom and dad in my kids. So it's exactly what you'd expect uh, from basic genetics. So I also show their one of their results to my undergraduates here at IU to, to demonstrate that we can do this kind of population assignment and that it has the detail to pick out these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So in your case, well. it, was, it was accurate. It yeah. was completely accurate, yes, which yeah. is actually boring. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, it... it but that's okay. Well, uh, boring if you already know your ancestry. Yes. But for many people, that is not a known uh, piece of information. And so one thing that these companies do offer is a way to access ancestry if you don't have written records, if you don't have family knowledge of that kind of information. Or also, if you were adopted and you want to know about your biological ancestry. I would point out, though, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this idea that your genes determine your ethnicity uh, because really what they're talking about, and you'll see it in the fine print in these companies, is your genetic ancestry, your genetic ethnicity. Uh, and there's a, a series of television ads from them where somebody says, oh, I thought I was uh, German and I wore lederhosen, but then it turns out I, I have Scottish ancestry, so now I'm wearing a kilt. And I, I think, you know, when we think about ethnicity, there's a lot of culture rolled into ethnicity and language and nationality, and those are not genetic things. Uh, and so um, I think it's it's a little problematic to say, okay, because I have German ancestry, I am ethnically German, if you have no connection culturally to Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if people take this and they find out, oh, I'm 5% Scottish, um, can they claim that? And like, is that actually meaningful? It may be meaningful to them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, we were talking about the fact that what you can also find out is that you're 3% Neanderthal. So, you know, it's just uh, what level of resolution are you interested in and what's important to you? Now, most individuals um, of European extract have somewhere between 2 and 3% Neanderthal in their genome because that's where Neanderthals lived up to about 35,000 years ago. Um, so, you know, it's really just what, how far back are you interested in the results? Uh, how far back do you want to know who you're related to? Yeah. But there's also the recent aspect of things. You can also, with most of these companies, be linked with other consumers who have uh, enough shared uh, um, fragments of DNA with you that we can conclude that they're relatively close relatives to you. And we can even estimate how close. And so for some people who are looking for long lost relatives or um, uh, wondering about an adoption, both parties have to opt in. So this isn't something where you could find out who your relative is and they wouldn't have known that that could happen. Uh, but if everybody's opting in, then yes, you can be linked with uh, some of your relatives. Um, and uh, I, I have been linked with relatives that I know are my relatives, but also people that I didn't know I was related to. So as much as being linked to them by name, I mean... Well, if they both yes, opt if, in. if we both opt in, yes. So, and that's accurate enough that you trust that? Well, it identified my 
first cousin once removed yeah. on my dad's side. Oh, yeah, yeah, especially for <laughs> things that recent. So yeah. I don't uh, share my information, but I allow people, they, I mean, they email you. They don't know who you are, but 23andMe, for instance, tells them, oh, you have a second to third cousin. Because sometimes in that range, you know, third or fourth, it's hard to tell the difference. So I see their names, and they say, hey, you know, I'm your second or third cousin. Now, I've never responded to any of those because it turns out I'm second or third cousin to everyone in the Jewish diaspora. Right. But, um, but you know, it's interesting. You see they tell you the last names that your genotype, your genetic uh, information is most closely related to, all sorts of things like that. Right, which does vary by company as well. So yeah. uh, if you want to know about specific companies, I can recommend there's an international society of genetic genealogists who online have a big table that compares the five main companies who are in the U.S. market uh, and what what how they differ in terms of everything from price to how many people are in their database to an assessment of how accurate their ethnicity estimates are. If you have a question about uh, DNA testing or an experience with DNA testing, give us a call, 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348 and you still have time to send us a question, news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I want to get back a little bit to uh, from the commercial and popular maybe to the academic and some of the research and the work that you do. I know, Matt, you have a – there's a lab in your name on the IU campus, right? Yeah. What, what's the, the main focus of your lab? What, what, what kind of work do you do? So, so that lab services all IU faculty and, in fact, faculty from other universities and companies. And so we are a genetic – uh, sequencing service. So if people want to know, it's often not for humans, or it's often humans and fruit flies, or worms, or all of the other model organisms that we use in biology, they send it to that center uh, to have the DNA sequence and then analyze. So half of the lab is the sequencing. And then really, it's true of all of these companies as well. The, the main thing they're giving to the consumer is their analysis. So not just a pretty website, but their predictions about ancestry and their predictions about uh, certain hair color, eye color, diseases that you may have. So what would what would be, um, you know, for the consumer like me, what, what are the big questions you're trying to answer? Um, I think in academic research, there's all sorts of questions. I personally work uh, tangentially on ancestry and on human movements around the world out of Africa. Um, but lots of people are mostly interested in diseases. And actually, in studying disease, you have to know a lot about ancestry because it's very important that you study a disease within specific genetic groupings because there are lots of differences between groups and there's all sorts of reasons why your genetic uh, tests for disease-causing mutations can be led astray if you don't have a single mostly homogenous genetic group to study. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I, I mean, just all the ethical questions it seems like around that, especially I know one of the diseases you mentioned earlier was Alzheimer's and if it's a disease where there's not a cure and I, I don't know. I, I guess personally, I'm just sort of thinking, is that really a, a test and a result you want to be getting at home by yourself? And That is an issue that gets yeah. brought up a lot. Um, and uh, so you do need to think about that, not only for yourself, how comfortable are you in learning those things, but it has implications for your family because you share a lot of DNA with your family. So if you find out that you carry, for example, a genetic marker that's associated with cystic fibrosis or the BRCA, one of the BRCA mutations that's associated with breast cancer, that has implications not only for your health, but potentially for your children's health, for your siblings' health, your parents, and even further out. So with something like this, if you got one of these tests and one of those markers showed up, then, I mean, you don't you don't just leap into action based on that. I think the first thing you do is you go to a clinical genetic genetic testing. So then you would get so basically they, a second test. Yeah. So those are much higher accuracy and they're held to much higher standards than these companies who, again, technically aren't supposed to be giving you medical results that are actionable. They're not giving you any sort of diagnoses. They're not medical companies. And they say that in the fine print. Well, let's go to that next step. How popular or how how common is it for people to go to, to medical genetics testing these days? Is it becoming more and more uh, common? You know, I know, uh, you know there's been a lot of news reports about, about if uh, 
there's breast cancer in a family that, that a young woman might go to see what her chances are of, of getting breast cancer. How, so is it becoming more common? Yes, it's much more common. We have many more markers for all of these diseases, which are more predictive than before. And, and I think a lot of the genetic testing is um, just a, a step from previous tests. So now we can, instead of doing amniocentesis on pregnant women, we can take blood from them. And some of the fetus's DNA is floating around in the mother's blood. So we can actually test the fetus using genetic markers without having to do anything sort of invasive into the placenta. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, that's something that you, could you not just go to a doctor and get a blood test for something like the breast cancer gene? Sure. And that's the way we would recommend that you do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So well, then I would. Have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So ancestry would not be the way to go for things like that. Ancestry truly does seem like maybe at its core is trying to figure out where you came from. And yes, you know? I mean they're they're adding more and more uh, uh, markers that they'll report on that have to do with your phenotype, which can include diseases, but also is about hair color and so on. But uh, ultimately, most of these companies are about your ancestry. But even academic labs, so the center on campus, we're not allowed to give you actionable human diagnoses, genetic diagnoses. The standards are even higher than those that we conform to. Mm-hmm. So you really have to go to a, a professional company. And it, it costs much more, of course. It's not $99. It's $3,000 often. Um, but you can be much more assured of the accuracy of the tests. And it will involve somebody who's an expert explaining those results to you. Okay. If you have uh, questions about DNA or experience with DNA testing, give us a call, 812-855-0811 or toll free at one 285 9348 You can also email us questions for the show, news at indianapublicmedia.org. Um, so, Rika, your passion in your uh, your line of work, your your line of genetics. I, I did read something on, on I think your website about how you said when you we look through time and see dramatic cultural change in local people, was it because of the existing culture slowly being transformed, or because the new people moved and mixed in or replaced them? Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure. I'm an anthropologist, yeah. so I'm interested in uh, human evolution and, and prehistory. And um, I work a lot with archaeologists who are interpreting the cultural record of our uh, history. And we often try to reconstruct how people are interacting with each other, when people move, migrate, um, and and those sorts of things. And we use cultural cues when you see new types of tools or new types of Uh, methods of manufacturing baskets or new symbols being used, you often think, okay, this is a change. And then is that because the culture is changing? Or is there actually people coming in, bringing those new technologies, that new symbolism? And so uh, I focus on looking at DNA Uh, mostly from human skeletons, uh, to look through time at how populations have interacted with each other and uh, have changed through time Mm -hmm. and see whether that hooks up with the archaeological evidence. Okay. And so uh, are you finding um, that the archaeological evidence has been um, accurate and... It's... It varies, uh, <laughs> not surprisingly, um, uh, and it does cause us to examine a lot of the assumptions we make about culture change and people moving around. Uh, so um, mostly what we find is that things are more complicated than we thought they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are discovering that there are um, areas where there is a long biological uh, continuity in a population. They have they don't seem to have changed uh, in terms of a whole new population coming in and replacing them. Uh, and in other places, we do see good evidence of population movement uh, and uh, population replacement and and also, often when people encounter each other, they have babies. Mm-hmm. And so you <laughs> you uh, also see admixture, as we call it. Mm-hmm. How do we get specific ancestry results in, in regions? You mentioned Germany earlier, when, when people are moving around so much. Well, it is difficult. 
um, it does help. The new technology allows us to look at a lot more genetic markers within the genome than we used to be able to. And having all of that detail does help sort out some of these things. But indeed, if you look at these ancestry companies, they do struggle with areas like Western Europe, where there has been a long history of movement. Oh, I, I was going to say that, yeah. you know, luckily for us, for humans, uh, after we left Africa, um, there was a, a period of relative stability where people didn't move quite so far. Um, and, and so, you know, the most, some of the most amazing genetics I've seen is Switzerland is divided into a French-speaking part, a German-speaking part, and an Italian-speaking part. And you can take Swiss people and assign them to which canton or group of cantons they're from and which language they speak because they're most closely related to Germans or French or Italians. So th there can be lots of resolution, and that's because people didn't always move around quite so much. I want to talk about uh, DNA in terms of, of crime and um, justice. You know, you've talked about the – we've mentioned the Innocence Project. And, Matt, can you talk a little bit about what the Innocence Project is and how, you know, how it's – like acted over time, what, so, it, what it did and what it's doing now. So I think that the Innocence Project um, is made up of lots of different parts. So one part is trying to exonerate people by getting more DNA tested. So when there are samples available for crimes from 20 years ago when there wasn't the DNA technology available, the Innocence Project would like some of those samples to be revisited and, and possibly genetically tested. And they have exonerated multiple people who are not guilty of those crimes based on DNA evidence. The other parts um, that they focus on is the misuse of the data, the mishandling of the data, let's say, at the lab uh, step, as we've been talking about, or the, the misuse of statistics. And so, you know, the, there's a huge area of using statistics to either say somebody was highly likely to be the perpetrator of a crime or not. And it's a very murky area that can be misused by lots of people. So it's important to have experts Mm -hmm. Now, the Innocence Project, of, if I remember right, started at Northwestern. Is that correct? Did it start? Well, so uh, it was started uh, uh, actually at Cordozo Law School, I believe, okay. uh, by um, uh, a couple of lawyers uh, who realized early on how important DNA would be in criminal cases. Uh, and there are actually branches of it or other sort of incarnations of it at many other uh, law schools. Um, but uh, the other goals of the Innocence Project, in addition to exonerating people and examining the science, is also trying to figure out how to avoid false convictions in the first place. So they do examine those cases where they've exonerated people to try and see what contributed to their false conviction. And then they make recommendations about how we should change how we investigate crime um, and uh, in order to uh, reduce the probability of false convictions. And so these are um, being uh, addressed at the state level because that's where most of these laws uh, are made. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we actually have incarnations or variants of the Innocence Project in many different uh, locations. One of the things with the privacy piece that I, we were talking about a little bit earlier was this idea that some companies would want this data. So I'm curious, why would, why would anybody want to purchase this from Ancestry and Me or something? I think some of the genetic tests that we are talking about that are predictive of diseases are um, those tests, and it's a quite a legal, uh, again, murky area, but they're held by companies. So they've developed the test. So BRCA1 is the breast cancer gene, and that test was developed by Myriad Genomics, and they have made a lot of money on that test. And so I think a lot of these companies are either selling that information to to further companies that can find more markers for important diseases that can then be turned into clinical diagnosable genetic markers that get sold at these high prices to doctors and patients. We have a phone call that we're going to try to get in here before the end of the program. So Terry from Bloomington is on the line. Terry? Yes, I was just wondering, uh, what is the most secure place? Where's the most secure place to get your uh, genetic testing done there, where it won't be shared outside of that place to find out, so you can find out your not only your ancestry, but your, uh, you know, if you've got any genetic health problems to look forward to. I, I think as uh, our early, the earlier guest, Brad uh, Shear said, um, and as an earlier caller, Dan said, who's a software engineer, 
really digital data is never totally guaranteed to be private. Uh, and all of these companies use uh, digital so ways of storing data because there's simply too much data to just write it all down. Um, so I think if you're really worried about that, you, you may be sort of out of luck. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, I would note that, that yeah. neither Matt nor I really were worried about that when we no. <laughs> sent it. And, and, and you know, there are whole groups of people who voluntarily post their genetic right. information um, for use in public studies of uh, genotypes and associating them with diseases or other phenotypes. And so, there, you know, I think on the positive side, there's lots of people who are willing to share those mm -hmm. types of things and lots of people who have found out important genetic markers they have for diseases or the probability of disease and then changed their lifestyle, their diet, or simply prepared their family for the fact that they might get a disease when they're older. Would you say that yeah. that the idea of going to, and I think you did say this earlier, go, of going to a medical, for a medical ge genetics test would be potentially at least safer than going to Ancestry or one of these other companies? Yes, but in those cases, you really have to know which test you want. So I, I think, you know, an advantage, if you can think of it that way, of, of 23andMe or Ancestry is that you find out a whole lot of predispositions, none of which may be very accurate, but you can at least decide uh, which one you should go ask your doctor about. And, and really, for all of these things, family history is the best guide. Mm -hmm. If you have a family history of a disease, you go to a doctor and they know which genetic tests to use, even before you ever go to any of these ancestry companies. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, HIPAA, which pr protects your health information, would apply because you would be doing it in a clinical setting. So there would be an additional layer of protection about the results. But in that case, so for Terry, in that case, would you have to have some sort of insurance pre-approval? I mean, that's not just something you can go do, right? Unless you have money. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. Right. That was my other question, you know, expense on, it, on this, yeah. you know, for getting, having a secure test done. Yeah, you're paying for security and accuracy. Exactly. Both of those things. Yeah. Right. Terry, thanks uh, for the call. We appreciate it. And thank you very much. Great show. All right. Thanks a lot. We're out of time. So I really want to thank our guests today, Matt Hahn and Rika Kasel, uh, also Brad Shear, who was with us earlier today. For Sarah Whitmire, Angela Batista, our producer, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. <laughs>